before the bloodbath begins, slither your way to the host's socials for the podcast slash Twitter at the BHO underscore podcast, Instagram at the Baron's Hideout underscore podcast, the stab to Aaron's accounts, Twitter at double AA row three, and Instagram at double AA row. Find the podcasts on your favorite apps and Patreon. Enjoy the slaying and try to stay alive. For the next period of time, strap in as the hosts rip and tear at the unsuspecting guests, in which they learn their dark secrets and methods of the genre. In this bloodbath, no one gets out alive. This is within the barracks. Welcome. I'm your host, Dustin. I'm your co-host, Aaron. And today we have another episode of Within the Barrens. Welcome to Hell. All right, Within the Barrens. Um, I still don't know if I want to call it a season or like a segment or segment. series or whatever it is for the show. But um, today joining us is another special guest, um, Craig Singer. He is an ex-Disney um, creative uh, VP and has directed his latest film, 645, which is a very, very good movie. It's a time loop thriller. Um, he also has other movies under his belt, like A Good Night to Die, Dark Ride, Perkins 14, and Animal Room. Um, if you're a fan of time, uh, time loop movies, uh, this is definitely one that you want to uh, seek out. We actually saw this uh, Salem Horror Fest last year, so um, this is um, probably my third or fourth time seeing it. Um, and it's it's a ride, man. And um, thank you for uh, wanting to come on. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's uh, looking forward to it, and I was really kind of bummed. I, I I wanted to go to I'd never been to Salem before, and I was really looking forward to going to the uh, to the horror fest. And um, something came up, and I wasn't able to go. But I you know I definitely want to check out Salem one of these years. Maybe it's it's better to go uh, in the off season. I hear it gets kind of crazy in the. Uh, yeah, it does. It's and, honestly more beautiful, like in the springtime, like going up, you know, looking at the shoreline, and it's the weather is just way nicer, and yeah, it's less clustered, and so I'd recommend off season. I've been down the I've been down the Jersey Shore, so I tell people the same thing about the summertime down the Jersey Shore. It's when you should avoid it. It gets it gets kind of crazy. It's mm-hmm. it's much nicer in the off season, so I totally get it. I can imagine, yeah. And uh, the good news, too, is um, Salem Horror Fest is actually going to be taking place in April of next year, so it's going to be on the off-season. So if you wanted to come to the fest, it's in April, you know, and and check out the whole shebang over there. It's it's really, really beautiful. Yeah, thank you for telling me that. I think I might do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know Kay would love to have you since your film was there and whatnot. So, yeah, Yeah. I would would love to meet you in person over there and kind of show you around because I love Salem. We're very, very close to where Salem is, and I visit there. That's fantastic. On a side note, I actually have a a property called Cassie's Poem, which uh, my partner is a woman named Arlene Klasky who created the Rugrats. Oh, really? And and it takes place in kind of a Salem-type town. And so um, a lot of the artwork that we created for that has that, that kind of vibe. So, yeah, I'd love to definitely check it out in person. That's awesome. Um, so I guess we can start with the questions. And um, I guess the best way to kind of do this is just kind of start from the beginning. And um, what kind of sparked your love for um, 
film and, 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 you know, directing and writing? That's a great question. So, um, first of all, uh, a lot of people think I'm just like into horror and I love and respect the genre, but I love all cinema, like, you know, dramas, comedies, um, Same. probably the film, the two films that affected me the most was one was the Godfather. And secondly, I saw the original Night of the Living Dead in a drive-in movie theater in the middle of the woods when I was a kid. And it, I had reoccurring nightmares for like 20 years. And in my nightmares, like Night of the Living Dead, it was like the purge, like once a year, Night of the Living Dead actually happened. And so the, the power of, of that experience was such a, you know, a formidable lesson in terms of what, what you can do in, in terms of manipulating uh, an audience and kind of putting someone in a you know, in, in capable hands and, and giving them joy, a uh, thrill or a joy ride, if you will. Yeah. And, um, but I never really thought I could do it professionally. It was, you know, I grew up in kind of a blue collar area near Patterson, New Jersey, and, and filmmaking was always something other people did. So I was never really um, expecting to do it. And what happened was um, I always had a love and passion um, for cinema. It was almost like my cathedral. And I used to just write letters to my favorite uh, filmmaker, um, Kazan, who was credited with uh, discovering Marlon Brando and James Dean, and he's a great director. And he would just he wrote me back and encouraged me. Uh, he founded the he was one of the founding members of the Actor Studio, and just told me don't worry about school. He said pick up a camera and just shoot, <clears throat> which was <clears throat> not as easy as today because everybody's walking around with a you know an iPhone basically yeah, film exactly. in your pocket. So back then you had to get short ends or Super 16 or 35 millimeter or Super 8. And, it was harder to do, but it was it was kind of worth it because it made you really think about your shots and you didn't just go crazy like with uh, digital. Um, so I'm actually glad I had that experience. My first film, we actually started cutting it on film. So we had work print in a in Technicolor uh, film I did called Animal Room with Matthew Lillard and Neil Patrick Harris. And uh, and then halfway through, the producer said, "We're there's this thing called the Avid. We're gonna start cutting them digitally." <laughs> so at least I had a little taste of what it was like to actually the tactile experience of like touching and smelling and feeling actual film which is really kind of cool awesome but yeah i mean it, you know the old-fashioned way must be very like real rewarding though i'm sure you know but, very time consuming but and I, I remember reading how the thing with um digital is there's such an immediacy to it like when you would make an edit on film you really had to think about your edit like is it yeah sense? is it gonna work so yeah you had uh it was a little bit more, it forced you to be a little bit more thoughtful, I should say. Nowadays, you could do montages and split screens and fades and dissolves and all sorts of transitions just on the fly. Scroll, so that, uh, delete. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, it's a different animal, but uh, it's an incredible. Uh, they're both really incredible. The technology has just come so far that uh, the challenge now isn't really making, anybody can make a film. It's really- exactly. Um, you know, rising above the white noise and all the muck that's out there, right? And getting yeah. seen, and that that becomes the tricky part. So you to have passion at the end of the day, too. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's the big thing. But what was your time at working at Disney like? Incredible. I mean, it was it was a privilege and, and an honor. I had a very small uh, entertainment company. I bootstrapped in Tribeca, and we mm -hmm. were kind of pioneers in the in the user generated content space. And it was a real privilege when you get that phone. I was in Romania actually doing my wow. for Lionsgate. Wow. And my lawyer called me up and he's like, you know, Disney's sick of hiring you guys. They want to buy your company. So I was like, <laughs> right on. And I was, that's a really, really good phone call to get. And uh, 
and then they asked me to stay on and, and kind of help um, build their online studio. So it was, it was a privilege, but it, you know, the downside is it took me out of the director's chair for like eight years. So that was, mm. that was the bad part. But the good part is it was just such an incredible journey. And I met so many really talented, imaginative people that it was, it was a, a fair exchange. And then when I left Disney to go back to filmmaking, I, you know, I have all that experience now. So I, I think it was well worth it. Paid off. Yeah. What kind of yeah, projects? It's, great, it's a great, great company. I mean, it's, uh, it was tough for me because as a, you know, the company was more of a digital online uh, social media company. So they okay. kind of put you in that box. So I couldn't bring them like my projects and my scripts because mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't thought of that way. I was like the online guy. Okay. So that was one of the frustrating things, but um, you know, all in all, it was uh, an incredible uh, rewarding uh, journey. And it was a real privilege to be part of that company. That's good. I gave you some time to think up more ideas and, you know, hundred percent, totally. I was, I was, <laughs> I was a whore for good material. So I was hoarding <laughs> like, any good script or idea. And I've got maybe 25 uh, IPs that I control of multiple genres. So I really use that time to obtain um, kind of best in breed material and scripts that are just, you know, better than most. I read a lot of scripts as I'm sure you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's tough. It's, it's really hard to craft, you know, 90 or a hundred pages with a characters and a plot and an arc. And, you know, just cause you can write an email doesn't mean you're a writer. Yeah, exactly. Know? And just like you could paint a house doesn't mean you're Van Gogh. So it's, I think that's one of the frustrating things is young people nowadays, because they, you know, they, they have these things like TikTok and things like that, that they, they feel entitled to like a three picture deal at Paramount because they mm-hmm. like a 20 second video. And that's not to say they don't, but you know, you have to have a respect for the craft and the discipline. Exactly. Have to be willing to take the steps necessary to really do the work yeah mm-hmm. yes. do authentically yeah this day and age is very like filled with influencers and stuff like that who think they can kind of just do whatever i mean it has been you know some movies i have came out with some of the influencers that are out there and i gotta say they're they're not that great but i mean it's if it's something it's a different world the media landscape just changes so yeah on an hourly basis it's funny i had a, an actress actually flying from london to meet me in new york for uh, a project and we were talking about actors and Marlon Brando's name came up. And oh, really? She didn't know who Marlon Brando was. Oh, no. <laughs> I felt so old. I told her, I said, one day, so, somebody's going to tell you they don't know who Billie Eilish is and you're going to know exactly how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <Who's> Billie Eilish? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, I actually have a pretty um, fun question here is... Um, what was it like working with Thomas G. Waits? I mean, for those of who who don't know, he is he was you know Windows and John Carpenter's the thing, and uh, seeing him in Six Forty Five was actually really cool. So, what was that experience like? You can't leave out the Warriors. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's he true. Was one of the Warriors. Man. Yeah, he was like, he's a cult. Yeah, he's a great actor. He, he co-starred with Al Pacino in American Buffalo and when Al could have had any actor on the planet. So Tommy's great. He, he and I go big, way back. We're, we've done uh, short films together. I've directed him. He, he did some voiceover work on a film I did in Romania called Perkins 14 for Lionsgate. And we just stayed in touch. And actually, um, I, wrote a, I co-wrote a play called Paradiddle about a drummer. And, and it was my first work produced off-Broadway and Tom directed that play. So I got to be lazy and sit in the audience as well. <laughs> and so then when we did the 645, um, you know, I, Tom and I are friends. So I was like, Tom, I want you to do, I think originally he was going to do Armin Garrow's role, Gene, the innkeeper. And then, uh, 
and then Gene, we ended up going to Armin, and then we went to Tommy, and he wanted to play uh, Larry. So he's great. He's like fearless. He, he's an artist. I think he stripped his clothes off in one scene. <laughs> I've got the blackmail Tom Waits footage for, you know. <laughs> but yeah, he's a, he's a trooper, and he uh, he just directed his first film, and he invited me to a, kind of a pre-screening in a couple of weeks in the city, and I'm really proud of him. I'm really happy for him. Awesome. It's good that he's still, you know, doing things because I feel like there's a lot of these 80s actors um, and even like before then, even like to some extent, like the early 90s, where you see a lot of them kind of like drop off and don't really do much. So it's good to see that we still have like these people that um, we've watched growing up are still out there, you know, killing it and and making all these awesome films and even um, now directing and writing things like stepping out of the the acting chair is is really really cool. So it, it was awesome to see him in your film. Thank you. I'll tell you a quick little Tom Waits aside. So you know I don't know if you know this or not, but we had a so six forty five had a nationwide theatrical release, which is pretty yeah. unheard of nowadays. So we were bookended by Jungle Cruise and Black Widow and Suicide Squad, like two hundred million dollar films and then our tiny little film, which is pretty amazing. And the head of Regal Cinemas flew i think they're in i want to say tennessee he flew from tennessee to the premiere at union square in new york city just to meet tom waits wow so he was so excited just he's like a huge warriors fan so he's like warriors is one of my favorite movies <laughs> so he flew in and, and tom and he did, took pictures and signed autographs so it was, uh, you know tommy's it's funny how certain people in your cast to strike a chord ray boom boom mancini the champion boxers in my movie and there's some people who just are crazy fight fans and they had to meet Ray. So things like that pop up. And, you know, Remy Ma was in my film and she's got a huge hip hop following. And, and even Armin from The Sopranos and from The Departed, um, he's got his own little following. So it was, it was kind of cool that, that way. Yeah, that's awesome. That's actually a kind of another question I wanted to ask you was, um, I know that this film was hitting festivals before it, you know, kind of got to the cinema, cinema. So what was it like going from the festival circuit for and then going to, you know, the big screen? Was that like a like a big like wow moment? Like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. Well, I feel like I would be like that. <laughs> it's a great it's a great story. Actually, I think it was re- the other way around. I think we did this the theaters first and then oh, really? the festival started. I think we applied, but what happened was a friend of mine um, named Mike uh, Rudnitsky was in theatrical distribution for like 40 years with MGM and, and Weinstein Co. and he wanted to see my film. I said, well, why don't you just, you know, wait till a festival. He's like, no, no. Can you curse on this podcast? Yeah, you can. Yep. So he was like, fuck that, fuck that. I want to see the movie. So he's like, send me the link, send me the link. So I sent him the link. Next day, he's like, hey, this is a really good film. So I was like, thank you. I said, maybe you could help us with like a, you know, a New York, LA premiere. And he goes, I think we could do a little bit better than that. And then oh. the whole Regal Cinemas thing was like, a, it's a dream for a film. It's like the super bowl for filmmakers to see your film on a, on a big screen right i mean you could do a four wall where you rent a theater but this was a proper nationwide theatrical this was pretty cool and so yeah mike was really instrumental in that whole thing happening and then we just started winning i think we, we started winning festival upon festival we won so many i mean today i just got my award uh, we won sweden we won sicily we won rome we won london we won oh, paris wow. we won we just were cr- crushing it because people like it's not a it's not a typical slasher film where there's just a body count it's yeah. kind of like a romantic thinking man's thriller you know what i mean so it, it kind of delivers the scares and there isn't actual characters that people care about they're they're invested in jules and bobby and i think that has a lot to do with 
Augie and Michael just delivering the goods as performers are just incredibly talented actors, both of them. All yeah. my cast, I was blessed with an incredible cast. And I cast the film myself because I couldn't afford a casting director. So I was really <laughs> lucky um, that I have some good friends and some and some people that I took a chance with. And uh, some, of the, some of my crew even, I tend to like to work with the same crew, but in this case, I really didn't have that luxury. So there were some people I hadn't worked with before who just you know, rose to the occasion and brought their A game and just was such a, an incredible, uh, an embarrassment of riches to find such talented people who were there kind of for the right reasons. Yeah, and they definitely do, you know, make this whole movie. Everybody is really, really good. Um, even like all the twists and turns that happen and like the ending of the film too, it's just like a, like a wow. Um, when you like watch time loop films, um, they're always, um, not really about, I don't know, um, like it is about the main person, right? It always is like the person who's going through it all, but like the way that this kind of works its way into the time loop and how it kind of gets out and you get to the very end, it's way different than any other time loop uh, movie that I've seen. And I, I think what you're doing is, is really genius. And um, I kind of wanted to ask another question is, um, since well, you've we should done... have ended it genius. I think that's the most important thing that you've said. We should just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so... so thank, thank you for that. I, it, it's <laughs> tough because the trick with time loop is to not let it feel overly, you know, repetitive or boring. And I think we kind of pulled that off. And, yeah. you know, I, again, I credit my editor, Sam, and, uh, you know, my, my composer Costas is a protege of Hans Zimmer and, you know, his fee is normally what I, my budget for my whole film. So he yeah. completely delivered an amazing, if you just go back and listen to the score yeah. on 645, it's, it's art, man. The guy's just so fucking talented, but, uh, but thank you for those kind words. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, uh, thank you for making this, this awesome film. And uh, that kind of wanted to lead into the next one that I wanted to ask was, how is it writing and directing a time loop movie compared to doing like a conventional, just like one line, one storyline, nothing like, like a time loop. Like, was it difficult doing something like this compared to just like a straightforward film? Not to say that this well, movie isn't straightforward. You know, like a lot of my credit goes to Robert Dean Klein, my writing partner. You know, I wrote the original story, but then Robert just nailed the script and he just, you know, put so much thought into it. And, and so you follow the Bible, you follow the blueprint, like building a house. So it was there on the page. And uh, we did have some flexibility to, to go off page and do some things that were a little bit less traditional, but it's all storytelling, right? So you're just trying to, you know, tell, and in this case, you're trying to stay one step ahead of the audience without giving it away. The thing that kind of shocks me is how many people like are surprised and enjoy the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real ambiguity to the ending of 645. So people often say to me, well, was, was Bobby on the island or was it all on his head? And I'm like, that's for you to decide. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the fun of it is not to have, you know, the filmmaker put it in a pretty box with a pretty bow on top. It's for, you know, for you guys to talk about it in the coffee shop after you see it. Yeah, that's that's why I like about films is you know you kind of having to think and you talk to everybody. That's why it's really cool Discussion, to see. Yeah, yeah, CDs in a <laughs> cinema too. You know, um, so it's a good thing that you're able to get it into a cinema and also go to festival circuits and whatnot. So the conversations, you know, start happening. And I've been um, kind of digging through the internet to see other people's reactions to this um, this movie, and everybody's like the same way. Like, wow, that ending is 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 crazy, but I love it. And then everybody's like, oh, what, what's your way of interpreting this and whatnot? So, yeah, you, you 
guys definitely did a really good job of having yeah, like a really, really nice, nice to hear. I appreciate that. I, I tend not to read reviews because you're going to oh, inevitably with any film, you're going to have people who love it. You're going to have people who hate it and everything yeah. in between. So you, the good stuff usually trickles down to me and I hear about it. So, but the bad stuff, you know, I don't want to put myself in a bad mood. The, the most telling thing was when you do a film, you do like, um, you screen like the rough assemblage it's not even a cut it's just like an assembly hmm. and it's usually really hard it's like you want to throw up it's that painful when you watch your first assembly because it's just all the warts and when i saw the first assembly of 645 i didn't feel sick i felt pretty good i was like like i knew we had a film in here and i knew we just had to kind of polish the stone and that was the thing about COVID is it really kind of gave us the time to dig in and, and to do a lot of the kind of tertiary little details that enrich a film, which was the benefit of working alone in dark rooms. Me and my team, we would, you know, have the time to do that. And, you know, there is a cut of 645, which is, is like two hours and 40 minutes, which we'll never, oh, wow. never see the light of day. But I love <laughs> it. You know, I, I don't mind, but people nowadays, everybody's like, hey, make it. everybody wants that 90 minute sweet spot for whatever reason. That's the attention span. So that was the, that was and the shorter goal. and shorter. <laughs> it's crazy. I actually really do like longer movies, but that, that's just me. <laughs> that's just me. I know a lot of people like the, you know, the 130 mark. So that, yeah, this stuff. Like, I'll give you a for instance, just, just for you, a little behind the scenes, because you say you like longer movies. So there's, when they first go to the bed and breakfast, Gene, the proprietor, gives him them a whole tour through the basement, through the kitchen, almost like Grady in The Shining, when Grady's kind of touring. Yeah. It's almost like a ripoff of that scene. And Armin did such a great job with it. But it just it made the film look five minutes longer and it didn't really move the story along. So maybe one day that'll be part of the outtakes. But that's an example of like what would make this the film a little bit longer. Yeah. That's awesome. So what's your uh, creative process like? You know, like do you just like ideas just pop in your head, you write it down and kind of sort through them and then or? I just find it a dark corner where i could sit and cry and <laughs> let it all out um, I, you know, it's it's different it's a it's a really great question i think for me um like the muse has to kind of whisper in my ear and tap me on the shoulder i'm not disciplined like a lot of my writing partners they wake up and they write that's what they do and that's a writer um i come up with ideas and sometimes i'm I used to write a lot more uh, in terms of screenplays, but now I, I, I'm happy to come up with the story and the premise. I'm pretty good with that. And then uh, I'll work with a writing partner or I'll, or I'll hand it off to a writing partner and let them do a lot of the heavy lifting. But what happens for me is um, music helps me, informs me. When I'm starting a film, I kind of have to get that opening shot. Once I get the opening shot, it's almost kind of like priming a pump or lighting a fuse. Mm -hmm. And until I get that opening shot, it's, it's really kind of tough for me. Like with, I did a film at Universal called Dark Ride. And then when I had the opening shot, it kind of, it was like breadcrumbing. It was like a story. I would just kind of just you know, imagine the scenes. Yeah. And so for me, that's, that's generally how it works. Also when, and I was thinking about this the other day, it's a great question. Once you actually lock a location, everything changes. Everything's out the window, your storyboards, your shot list, because a location will inform a lot of different things. Like had I not actually been in that bed and breakfast, that incredible there's a shot that goes down all the staircases i don't know if you remember that in 645 yeah and it starts at the top with the uh, augie on the phone with her mom and the camera literally co goes down like five flights of stairs into the basement now unless you lock that location you can't even you know really dream of coming up with a shot like that unless you have the budget to build a set which we didn't so a lot of times it's really 
physically being in the location, getting there early, kind of walking around the location, feeling the energy in the vibe of the location. And then, and then you can start to you know, formulate your shots. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good shot too. And there's a lot of really, really beautiful scenery in this too. And the movie feels so polished as well. And it's very pleasing on the eyes. And that's one thing that a lot of films are st- starting to do now is like implement a little bit more color, more bright lighting, and um, kind of like really light things in, in a way that they've never really done it before. And I think it really has to do with a lot of like the, the digital side of like, you know, you can have a little bit of digital kind of help you with lighting and, um, but a lot of the films that are coming out right now, like I just talked to um, some of the guys uh, that were doing the new movie that's coming out, Revealer, um, and they were kind of talking about how um, they had to implement some digital lighting into it. And this this film definitely is very, very pleasing, and all the scenes are great. Um, nothing is, like, too dark or too bright. Everything is, is really, really well done. Well, the location, I think, was we're pretty lucky that we found a town that has not been overly shot it, it looks like it's right out of a like the line in the film out of a norman rockwell painting and i think mm-hmm. you know woody allen shot stardust memories there but other than that it really is kind of a, a hidden gem and a ton of credit goes to lucas Batassi, my cinematographer my dp who came in from la we never worked together before so that's a huge leap of faith and he's just such a brilliant uh talent and uh, we'll be working together on other projects but it was you know, i was fortunate enough that he came out and we watched some films together. We, we talked a lot about films over the phone. He's just a uh, super, super talent. It was uh, any shot I wanted to come up with or he, he came up with, he was just down to execute it and he would operate the camera as well as light. So yeah, he and, uh, you know, my editor, Sam uh, Edelman, I'd never worked with Sam before. And he was, he's, he's the, one of the best editors, if not the best editor I've ever worked with. And That's awesome. Like having, having crafts people like that and, and also the nice thing about Sam was he's the only only other kind of old guy other than me on the set. So it was like a bunch of, bunch of kids and us. So it was nice to have Sam. We had each other's backs. And, uh, you know, we brought out Maria, my uh, executive producer um, from California. And we met in California and we talked about this. And again, Augie was helpful in helping, you know, introduce me to some of the kind of young L.A. film family that uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to work with. And, you know, everybody was everybody was cool everybody pitched in and uh it was kind of like you know coppola filmmaking in the late 60s early 70s where everybody kind of wore many hats and it was really a pleasurable experience that's awesome good on your whole team how does it feel having won multiple awards for something that you created and you know or you know like thought of and that you know you put together a group of people and you know like I said, with just an idea and just made it happen. How does it feel like knowing so many people appreciate it? It's a, it's a nice, you know, it's, it's not about that. It really is about the journey. And I really love the film from day one. So if people didn't, if it didn't win the awards, I still would have, you know, an affection for the journey and the relationships and the work that said, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. So many people will watch the film on Apple TV or Voodoo or Redbox or wherever it's it's out mm-hmm. there. Why it's in Best Buy, it's in Target, it's in Walmart, and I'll and they may really love the film, and I'll never know it because a lot, most people, if you like a film, you don't take the time. The people who are nasty and who want to hurt you, they'll take the time to go online and oh, stand. Yeah. Definitely, <laughs> if you like a film. Generally, if you like a film, you like a film, then you go about your life. So the, mm-hmm. the awards do one thing. It's kind of a a reminder and a validator that people do like the movie and so you know when you win an award and you, you try to imagine how many 
films are submitted to these awards sometimes hundreds if not thousands yeah and so when you win best feature or best narrative feature or best horror or best thriller or best director it's just kind of a reminder that the film is, is tapping into and i knew it would find an audience i knew people you know it's, people would like it but again nowadays it's tough to second guess what people actually like because mm -hmm. it's very very subjective some people just want to see heads getting cut off <laughs> yeah, that, film. that yep. was never my thing it was never you just changing you know, the like of an eye too <laughs> I'm not critical of people who like those types of movies. It's, you know, personally, it's not my cup of tea, but um, yeah. yeah. So to answer your question, you know, it feels really nice. Good. We deserve it. Yeah, definitely. And um, another thing that I think is something that I like to always know about, because, you know, usually um, films are, are a reflection of like what the writer or the director um, has going on in their lives and also like what's going on in the world. So I was curious, was there something that maybe have happened in your life or something that you've seen going on in the world that kind of gave you an inspiration or even like your writers um, that helped you with this, get, have any kind of inspiration um, to help make this film? Well, I don't know about to help make it film, but in terms, obviously there's, there's the Groundhog Day comparison. I yeah. always thought that, that was a great concept for a thriller, right? I thought, you know, this should be a horror film. And by the way, when I wrote the original drafts, Robert and I, this was way before Happy Death Day, and which I've never seen, by the way. This is way before, I would say, majority of the time of horror films. So it was very new and novel at the time. Now it's a cottage industry. Now there's so many time loop films, but back then um, that wasn't the case. So in terms of inspiration, I think what's which interesting to me is that kind of with the pandemic and COVID, it's like everybody on the planet's lived their version of my film. Yeah. Like day that repeats yeah. the sameness to a day. I think that's kind of really kind of bittersweet and very kind of uh, ironic and interesting. Yeah. All right. That's a good answer. What else you got going on over there and for um, questions? Sorry. I like your Wolfman head behind you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I have so many masks. I have like almost all the Michael Myers masks over here too. I, I'm a huge collector. Do <laughs> you have any projects that you're currently working on or anything you want to share? Anything that's you know going on that you're thinking up? Yeah, there's three, actually three projects. One is uh, Power Diddle, which was the play that Tom directed yep. and doing a film version of that drama. And uh, then there's a project called Tat which takes place around the, the world of uh, memorial tattoos, which is probably the darkest script I've ever done. It makes 645 look like a kindergarten project. <laughs> and uh, it's really disturbing, but in a good way. And um, then there's a drama uh, called Monkey's Nest that I might be shooting very shortly in Youngstown, Ohio, with a pretty pretty big cast, which uh, I'm not at liberty to share. But when, I, when the time is right, I promise I will share it with you. All right, awesome. Awesome. We'll be keeping our eye out. Yes. Um, so do you have a favorite scene in this film? Is there one that like sticks out the most to you? Do you like, yeah, this is such a great scene? Well, there's a couple. Uh, like you said, there's a lot of really visually pleasing moments in the film. Um, I love the split screen montage. Oh, yeah. So, and the composer is Ron Aniello, who's Bruce Springsteen's partner. He's his producer. He oh, wow. Did Bruce, he did Bruce's last five albums, and he just did it as a favor. I met him socially and didn't have, I didn't know him. And uh, I showed him the scene. He's like, yeah, <laughs> it's just so beautiful. It's not, not really like a horror film, but it's just really, it's cool. And it gets you inside Bobby's head and in terms of like the inner struggle and turmoil. And I think it's an interesting device that we really don't overuse. We, we use it very sparingly. So that's probably one of one of a few, uh, you know, visual moments that I think are pretty imaginative. 
Yeah, um, I'd say that I think our favorite scene um, would be. I don't want to spoil too much of this, but um, I think this is this is okay because it's kind of still towards the beginning of the film. Is um, when uh, Bobby is um, he went through the whole day. He's gonna go go take a shower. And he's like, oh, we finally did it, and he, he lets out this big relief. Finally did it. We're gonna go do it. He goes to open up the door, and then. He, he just he just lays there because he's like, oh, crap. Because it's like, okay, it's gonna happen again. I, I think that scene is um, really really powerful in in a lot of ways. Because um, you're like you're rooting for him. He's like, yes, yeah, you're finally gonna gonna get there. And then, nope. I mean, you have it's a little bit of a like tough shot too because it's a three sixty camera move. Yeah, you got to get the camera and the actors to kind of. It's a ballet, isn't it? Because you want the yeah. camera to kind of brush by him as he gets behind Augie and then back on Bobby. So it's, you know, it was a tough shot, but it, it, it's a great shot. It's something that, again, we didn't do a lot of the 360 camera stuff, but um, yeah, it's a nice little moment. I agree. And um, do you have a a favorite horror film? Is there anything out there that you that you would like watch every single day if you could? Well, again, I, I probably Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. I love. Um, newer films i was a huge fan of of uh 28 days later and uh, it follows it, i thought it was great i just saw his follow-up film uh under this thing is called under the silver lake same director as it follows mm-hmm. didn't like it as much as it follows but i thought that was a really really love the music love the actress and it follows um so yeah i like but um you know in terms of favorite films i think anything by kazan you know uh, kubrick kazan east of eden is probably my favorite film but um, yeah, I, I you know, I'll watch. I binge films like I'll watch Mad Max Fury Road thirty times. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen the new Dune nine times at this point. So I tend to watch films that I like over and over and over again. Just kind of study them for different aspects of the film. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, something new every time. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So um, I didn't look too deep into this, but um, is there going to be any sort of uh, release for the score? Because I'm a huge like movie score collector um is there anything on vinyl i didn't really take a look so i wanted to ask you if there was like anything that's going to be coming out for the, i don't know about vinyl but i believe they're doing a uh, cd oh, for awesome. 645 um and it's, they were talking about like and i think this is the new world nfts so oh, i don't yeah. know if it's going to be an nft or how it would be an nft but the answer to your question is yeah because ha- hakeem draper and david lotman are uh, co-music supervisors along with joe rudge and uh, some of the songs in the film are fantastic. I mean, the mm-hmm. opening music, uh, there's a, the closing music with uh, Money is her name, and just her voice is so beautiful and melodic and haunting. That's one of my favorite moments, actually. So there's some really great, there, Jimmy Harry has a, it's a band called Horgasm. And during the drunken bar scene, there's that Horgasm music from like, it's a driving 80s kind of vibe. Yeah. So there's some really good music in the film. And yeah, I think that we definitely will have a, a CD and we should have a CD. All right, I'll definitely be picking that up. Um, is there, this is always a really fun one to ask too, is um, is there a scene that was the most difficult to do and once you guys got it, you felt really relieved? I think the staircase shot was pretty difficult because you're carrying a camera down, you know, all those flights of stairs. I think it's <laughs> yeah. five flights. I think, you know, you bump your elbow, you, you see a shadow, so it's like when you're going around a corner, you've got to have the camera. Like when we got on, onto the landing, um, like the ground floor, we had to have the camera go a certain way to avoid a big shadow. And so that was tricky. I think we did that maybe eight times. 
Oh, wow. Um, yeah, you could spend a day on a shot like that. Um, matter of fact, my, my first film, Animal Room, we, we had a Steadicam shot that went through an arcade and then down in the basement of the arcade and then back up the arcade. And on the way up, he kept hitting his elbow. It was a really tight, <laughs> really tight spot. And he's a, he's a great Steadicam operator. So shots like that can, you know, when you're dealing with techno cranes or jibs or equipment, it, you know, it eats the clock. So we were pretty fortunate because we were, we were lean and mean. We were kind of running gun with a lot of our equipment. So, um, you know, we had uh, the Aeroflex and uh, not, not a lot of heavy equipment, a lot of handheld and a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of handheld. And we had like uh, a movie, a movie rig. So we didn't do a lot of dolly shots, a few dolly shots. And that kind of helped make the days happen a lot quicker when you're working with heavy dollies and techno cranes and things like that jibs it can be very very time consuming we just didn't have the luxury so we had our back against the wall and it was like uh, necessity is the mother of invention mm-hmm. wow yeah that's a beautiful shot um like i said there's so many great things that happen in this film and this the whole design of everything and that's what i've, I've been really liking about current films that are coming out within the last like three to five years that I really think they're starting to finally push boundaries um, in the um, uh, digital age really and also with story writing uh, things were so I don't know it was like a big lull period of everything was kind of just the same and this is definitely a, a film that's not that this definitely breaks out of the norm I know that you said that you know other uh, directors and writers are starting to do know time loop um, films but this one definitely sticks out uh, from all the ones that I've seen of late anyway and this was it's really really fun um, I've, I've watched it like I said during the fest uh, I actually I bought it um, and um, I'm gonna have to get a physical copy because I have it digital but I do want to buy physical and I'm gonna be getting uh, the soundtrack as well because um, yeah everything in this film is phenomenal nice nice thank you so much get your yeah get your audience to to watch it and to rent it that would be yes. so amazing and then uh, yeah when we do this cd i'll sign a copy and i'll send it over to you oh wow that would be freaking awesome dude thank you yeah this, this is such a great film so yeah if anybody who hasn't seen this um you, you really do need to see it because it, it definitely is it's not the typical time loop like you're thinking of right now it it, it pushes a lot of a lot of boundaries on it um a really good job on on your team and everybody have there all the actors and everything everybody solid solid work thank you thank you thank you i'll pass that along all right and um i don't think i have any other questions aaron did you have any uh, last minute thoughts or anything that you wanted to ask greg all right uh craig is there anything that you want to shout out um to uh, our listeners or anything that's going to be up and coming anything that we should be keeping our eyes out for just, uh, you know, thank you for supporting the film and saying such nice things. And, and you guys have a great podcast going. So your fans are lucky and keep thank up you. the good work. And uh, anything I can do for you guys in the future, you let me know. Oh, man, that, that's that. awesome. You're such a, an awesome dude. You're very, very humble. And um, you, you do make good films. I need to go back and watch all your other ones because um, they are on the list. It's just that this day and age, it's so hard to keep up on everything, you know. It's so much so much good stuff out there. I, I suffered the same uh, dilemma, but um, listen, the fact that you guys watched and appreciated 645 is a win. And uh, I consider you guys now friends and fans. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. And same here, man. You're, you're definitely part of the family. If there's ever a time you want to come on and talk about movies, 
um anything, anything that we're reviewing you're more than welcome to come on man because this, this was such a such a joy and uh, we've Thank been doing so doing yeah. a lot of interviews and like they just keep getting better and better every time we do them and everybody we keep getting on here is just really really cool um so it was definitely a pleasure talking to you and uh, uh you guys you know, stay safe and have a great weekend yeah and thank you man and uh, this was uh the baron's hideout podcast i was your host dustin host and now is our special guest craig singer director of 645 please go check it out i'll i'll have links to everything down below please please go and support this film because it, it definitely needs it thank you guys <laughs>